Acts chapter 14 today. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into this. Father, we love you, and we thank you just for the grace that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you just for how much you love us. We thank you, God, for the plan that you have for each one of our lives and that you have invited us into the story to be a part of what you are doing in this world. And I pray today that as we just unpack these 20 verses, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would just minister that reality to us in a new and in a fresh way. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So when's the last time that you asked yourself this question? Was it really worth it? Have you ever asked yourself that in the midst of something? Maybe it was this summer when you were down at the beach with your kids or your grandkids and you decided to embark on building one of those sandcastle cities. And so you were there with your kids and, you know, bucket after bucket just, you know, coming in from the water and, and pouring down and, and building and forming the, this amazing monstrosity that was just beautiful. And then the tide rose and it just wiped it out. Did you find yourself going, was that really worth it? Until later on that day when, when you were scrolling through maybe your wife's photos on her phone and you saw the look on your kids' faces or your grandkids' faces or you saw that video where their, their faces just lit up and it was like, yes, it was worth it. My wife and I, last week, we were up in, in Tahoe. We have some friends that give us access to an amazing place there, and so we just had an incredible time. But where we stay is on the trucky side of Tahoe, so we've always driven up the 5 to the 80 because we're like five miles off the 80, but everybody kept telling us to take 395. So on the way home on Friday, we took 395 to come home, and I got to tell you, it was a little bit longer because we got behind some really slow trucks, but it was beautiful. And all the way driving, especially, you know, behind some of those slow trucks, I was like thinking, is this really worth it? Is this really worth it? But then we came to these settings where it was just mountains on one side and just beautiful. My wife's taking pictures and later on she posted, I was like, yep, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth the extra hour. And we stopped at this place. I think it's called Schatz Roadhouse Grill on 395 in Bishop. If you haven't, if you, if you ever drive that way, you got to stop there. Amazing burger and the best root beer float I've ever had in my life, okay? It was worth it. It was worth the extra hour. You know, I shared with you a few weeks ago how I once took a um, hundred high school kids to Russia. Actually, it was 80 high school kids and 20 adults who often acted like high school kids um, on this trip. And there were times during that trip where I literally found myself wondering, was it worth it? Was this really, really worth all the trouble? Until the last night of that trip, where we saw over 2,000 Russian people respond to the message of the gospel and give their life to Jesus. And a church ended up getting planted in that city. And I'm like, yeah, it was worth it. But there were other trips that we took to Hungary, to Scotland, to England, where we took you know, teams and, and, and saw much less, like handfuls of people that came to Christ. Was it worth it? Absolutely. 
Because the Bible tells us that when one person responds to the message of the gospel and they turn from their sin and they turn to Jesus, that all of heaven rejoices. I think Jesus is leading the celebration. And it's like, yeah, the cross was worth it. Look at that. In fact, today, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're not walking with Jesus, and you give your life to Jesus today, that will be the response in heaven. Jesus will be saying, yeah, the cross was worth it for that one, and we'll be celebrating with you as well. Well, as we come today to Acts chapter 14, I'm reminded of a saying that Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, all the time. It was a quote from C.T. Studd that he just kind of tweaked a little bit. And he would say this, we only have one life to live and it will soon be passed, but it's only what is done for Christ that is going to last. And that is so true. And as we come here to Acts chapter 14, I wonder if Paul ever found himself wondering, asking the question, was it worth all the trouble? And as Paul and Barnabas are leaving the area of Pamphylia there in Turkey, and and they're traveling, they're heading into the area of Galatia. We have a map that'll kind of show their their progress here. You know, we remember they came from Cyprus to Perga in this area of Pamphylia. This is all Turkey. They make their way up to Antioch, Pisidia, and, and they're ministering there. That was what Acts chapter 13 was about. And then they head to Iconium today, and they're going to end up in Lystra and eventually down in Derby. And this area is all part of Turkey. So they're, they're heading into this area now known as Galatia. That's where we get the, the Galatians, the book of Galatians is from. They travel to two new cities and experience three different reactions to the preaching of Jesus. So we're going to see these three things today, that the three reactions to Jesus, that there is division, there is delusion, and there is death. Doesn't that sound awesome? Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> So in the midst of all of this, though, we're going to learn some great lessons about staying committed to Jesus in a hostile world. So we come to the first city, which is Iconium, where they experience division. Look at verse 1. It says, now it happened in Iconia that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed, but unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brethren. Pause there and give me your attention. Iconium is an ancient city there that was more Greek than Roman. There was no large Roman garrisons in Iconium, and so it remained more Greek in attitude and somewhat resistant to Roman authority. You could say that they were a rebellious group. This was the, Iconium was the anti-establishment crowd. And so Paul and Barnabas, they head to Iconium, and they follow their same strategy, in seeking to minister to the people in Iconium, they start by going to the synagogue. And we've talked about this. Why did they go to the synagogue? Because it was always an open door for them. Paul was a former Pharisee, so he was very versed in the Jewish culture. Barnabas was a Levite. And so those two things gave them this open door to go into any synagogue. And the the rabbis would be like, hey, you guys want to talk to us because of their background and their, their heritage and their knowledge. And so Paul begins to preach. 
And he probably preached a similar message to the one that Tyler took us through in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 is the only chapter that records the sermon that Paul gave. The rest of the the book of Acts, we don't know. All we know is he goes into a synagogue and he preaches. But this, I think the sermon in Acts chapter 13 is given to us as kind of an example of this is what Paul preached. And I would sum up Paul's message in Acts chapter 13 in this way. He tells the Jewish people, that's his audience in the synagogue, he tells them what they know, he tells them what they missed, and he tells them why it matters. So he starts with what they know, and he starts talking about their heritage, how they are God's chosen people, and God has brought them into this chosen land. And Paul was brilliant because he had a way, he knew how to suck people in, and and by telling them about their heritage, that they were from the the line of of Abraham, and that from Abraham, God was going to bless the world, and that there was going to come a Messiah who would be a descendant of King David. And I could see all these Jewish people going, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's who we are. Tell us more. So he begins by telling them what they know, but then he tells them what they missed. And what they missed was that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that all the prophets, that John the Baptist, that everybody was pointing to, but they missed it. They failed to understand this, and Paul would go on, and all it would tell us in the rest of the chapters that we're going to see in the book of Acts is that Paul would go into the synagogue, and he would talk about Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, or he would talk about how the Messiah was to suffer, and this is what he does in Acts chapter 13, but they miss it. They miss the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, so what happens? The religious leaders, he says, our our religious leaders, they kill Jesus. They ended up crucifying him. But this is the good news that Paul brings them to. God raised him from the dead. And then he tells them why that matters. In fact, if you want to look back at verse 38 of chapter 13, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you forgiveness of sins, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which could never be justified by the law of Moses. He says, this is why it matters. Jesus, did, God did through Jesus what, what could never be done through the law of Moses, and that was to bring forgiveness of sins. That's what everyone is longing for. That's what everyone is, you know, it's been said that we feel guilty because we are guilty, and people realize that, and they recognize that. They understand there's something wrong with me. So through Jesus, he would bring forgiveness of sins, and he would bring the way to which sinners could be made right with God. So that is, in a nutshell, the message that Paul would preach in synagogue after synagogue throughout the Middle East. But it would always be the same reaction. There would be some Jews who would believe And they would turn their hearts to Jesus, but most of them don't. The Jews would end up chasing them out of the synagogue. So we'll see Paul, they end up going to the Gentiles. The Gentiles gladly receive their message. And so there's sort of this deja vu type of aspect to so much of the rest of the book of Acts. We'll find ourselves as we're reading going, didn't we read this already? Because it's the same thing that happens over and over and over again. So here in Iconium, there is division. 
Some Jews and some Greeks, this would be Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, that's why they're in the synagogue, they believed in Jesus. But notice verse 2 again, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. What comes next? Division. And this is always the case, because I've told you this before, we've seen this already in the book of Acts, that when God is moving in a heart, when God is moving in a place, Satan always opposes. In fact, look at verse 4. It says, the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, and others with the apostles. So the reaction to Jesus in Iconium is division. The city was divided. Did you know that our city is also divided? That's what Jesus does. He divides. In fact, Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 10. It'll be on the screen, verse 34. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and your enemies will be right in your own household. Now, is Jesus being a downer here? No. Is he being a drag? No. He's just being real. He's just speaking reality. Some of you have experienced this. You came to Jesus, and right away, there was division that took place in your family. You see, Jesus stated very clearly in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's an absolute statement. And then Jesus backs that up through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Tyler was right last week when he said that uh, everything hinges upon the resurrection. And it was Jesus who taught us the true way to live. That there's only one way to experience abundant life. There's only one way to truly live. And that's to believe in him and then live your life to please God. It's to understand that you exist to bring God glory. But you know, there's some people today that'll say, oh, you know, Jesus is great. He's cool. He was a great teacher. He was a great prophet. He did some great miracles. He taught some wonderful things. But, you know, he, he can't say that he's the only way. And, and, and the way that he told us to live can't be the only way to live. People want to be neutral about Jesus. But you can't be neutral. Jesus said, you're either for me or you are against me. You either believe that I am who I claim to be and I prove that by dying on the cross and three days later rising again from the dead or you deny me. Those are the only two options. So the city was divided over Jesus. And today, there's homes that are divided over Jesus. There's young people who, we've seen this, they come to Christ. They give their life to Christ, and they start wanting to come to church. They start reading their Bibles. They start following Jesus. They start changing kind of the way that, that, they, that they live, and their parents don't know what to do with it. Their parents that don't know the Lord, they think they've joined a cult. We've seen it happen where in marriages where one spouse comes to the Lord, and suddenly the other spouse is just you know, thinking, this, is, this stinks, It's like, you know, they're all religious now, and they've thrown a a monkey wrench into my lifestyle. She doesn't want to party with me anymore. 
And we see this type of thing happen all the time. Jesus brings division. But here's the question. What do we do when we face such division? Do we isolate? Do we huddle together for protection? Do we run from the opposition? Well, what did Paul and Barnabas do? Did they run? Did they bail? Nope, this is what they did. They dug in. Look at verse 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time. Everybody say, a long time. I love this. The opposition is coming. The city is dividing. You'd think they'd be like, hey, let's get out of here. This is crazy. No, they dig in and they stayed there a long time. An old seaman said this, in fierce storms, we can do but one thing. There's only one way to survive. We must put the ship in a certain position and keep her there. And that's what we're called to do. We put ourselves in a place and we stay We dig in. You know, we live in this society that is so used to instant results. So it's created within us a I want it now mentality. We have Amazon today, and I'll be honest with you, I like Amazon. You know, I like that I can shop in my pajamas, and uh, but it's crazy. You You can order something on Amazon and get it the same day or the next day. And every once in a while, though, it'll say, you know, this will be, it's going to take four days. And aren't you like, four days? I can't believe it, man. I got to wait four days? Like, Like, are we serious? It's crazy, right? You know, you, you don't even have to cook. You can just door dash, you know, order something that comes right to your house. You, you can spend all day, if you don't have to go to work, in your pajamas if you want to. That's the world that we live in. It's this culture of convenience, this culture of ease, and all of this is producing a culture that lacks perseverance. So that when the going gets tough, we see this all the time, people bail. I've seen people prematurely quit their jobs. People prematurely quit churches. People prematurely quit quit marriages, friendships. There's no perseverance. There's no stick-to-itness in our culture today. Perseverance means to be persistent despite the difficulties or delays that we face. Did you know that perseverance is a biblical virtue? That learning to persevere actually develops within us a spiritual maturity. This is what James said about this. James chapter 1 verse 2. He said, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance, another word for perseverance, has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. This is what James is telling us. The difficulty that you find yourself in today is meant to produce an endurance in you, a perseverance in you to make you more like Jesus. So let it grow. Embrace it. Lean into it. Don't bail. I love the promise that we're given in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season, everybody say in due season. 
in due season you, you will reap if you do not lose heart. The Christian life is a race. The Bible tells us that. But it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we have to learn to play the long game. You know, in 1985, I was hired to come on staff here at Calvary Vista as a youth pastor. And in 1985, my mentality as a young man was that that I knew I had a desire in my heart to go and plant a church. And so as I came here, I came with this mentality, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'll stay there two years, two years. And then I want to go somewhere outside of California, somewhere where there's not a Calvary Chapel every 10 or 15 minutes, and I want to go and and plant a church in, in, in some other state, some other place. That was my mentality. But then I, not even two years in, about a year and a half in, I was at a conference, much like the one that we're going to host this, this week with uh, the youth pastors and youth leaders that are coming. Be praying about that. It's going to be a really awesome time as youth leaders and young adults coming from all over are going to be here to, to just learn and grow. I was at a conference like that, and I heard a speaker issue this challenge to all the youth pastors. He said, I want all of you here who are youth pastors to not look at your youth ministry as a stepping stone to something else. That's kind of how I was looking at it. He said, we need youth pastors who will stay the long haul, who will, who will commit to a long time. I took that as a word from the Lord for me. I ended up staying here as a youth pastor for seven years. You know which years were the most fruitful out of that seven? It was the last three. It was the last three. The last three years where we saw the most amount of kids get saved, our group doubled in size. It was in those last three years that God did such an amazing thing. We need to realize we need to be in it for the long haul. Paul and Barnabas, they they dig in. Look at verse 3 again. It says, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done through their hands. Notice that they were speaking boldly. They dig in, and they're not backing down. When the adversaries of the gospel get radical, it's not a time for believers to grow faint. Guys, we can't lose sight of the mission that we have been entrusted to, the mission that we are on with Jesus, and the mission is about seeing lost people come to Jesus. That's why we're here. Salvation is the agenda. Now, I want to say something that might offend a few of you, but I want you to hear my heart on this. Okay, don't tune me out. But politics is not our agenda. Okay, now I I'm, I think politics are important. I'm all about voting, and I'm all about seeing you know us stand for our rights and seeing you know people uh, Christians get into to offices. I think that is radically important as part of our mission of being salt and light. But politics is not our agenda. Salvation is our agenda. It's seeing lost people come to Jesus. That's why we are here. And listen, church, I believe with all of my heart that we are living in the last days. I believe that Jesus could come at any moment. I believe that Jesus is coming soon. 
but I have no idea what soon means. Because God says this, to me, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. God's time frame is so different from ours. So we have to be in it for the long haul. You know, I was saved in 1974 at the height of the Jesus Revolution, the height of the Jesus People Movement. And during that time, man, prophecy was such an emphasis. Maranatha, Jesus is coming soon. That was our mantra. There were bumper stickers. Some of you will remember these. The bumper stickers would say, in case of rapture, this car will become unoccupied. Danger, you know? Remember those? Like, you're, you're following somebody with that on their car, and you're like, what in the world, you know? But that was the mentality, but the rapture didn't happen. We're still here. We're still waiting. And this is what I witnessed. I saw a lot of people who were so excited about the coming of the Lord walk away from Jesus and get caught up in, in carnality. And go back to their old ways. And this was the problem. They were more excited about the coming of the Lord than the Lord who was coming. That was the problem. And guys, we need to understand that it's all about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and walking with Jesus and serving Jesus and telling others about Jesus. We need to be in this for the long haul. Remembering that promise in Galatians 6, 9 that I just read, in due season, you'll reap if you don't lose heart. So Paul and Barnabas remind us that we need to stand our ground and let Jesus be seen in our words and our actions. We see in verse 3, I want you, don't, don't miss this. I think this is interesting. They were speaking boldly. That was their words. And then it says, and God was bearing witness of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Bearing witness. He's obviously talking there about miracles. God was doing miracles. And it's awesome when God does that. But don't miss this. I think that our lives can bear witness to the person of Jesus when practical acts of service and kindness are being done by our hands. It's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they would see what? Your good works. And do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Those good works are those good things done by our hands. And this is how people live who realize I exist to bring glory to Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas, they dig in. They're there for a long time. We're not sure how long it was, but it was a long time. And then we read in verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews, part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse them and stone them, they came aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding regions, and they were preaching the gospel there. So Paul and Barnabas, they're brave, but they're not foolish. 
They know the Lord protects his children, but he also gives them common sense. And when it gets to the point where, where their lives are in danger and they're being threatened with their lives, that they realize, okay, God's not done with us. He's got more work for us to do. So they leave there, they departed, and they come to Lystra. And in Lystra, we see there's a different reaction to the message of Jesus. It's one of delusion. Lystra was also in that Roman province of Galatia, about 18 miles southwest of Iconium. And Lystra was sort of a frontier outpost. It was, think of Hicksville, okay? That's, that was Lystra. It was kind of the wild, wild west ethos there. The people were backwards. They were uneducated. There's no synagogue there. But the ministry in Lystra gets off to a, a flying start when this crippled man gets healed. We'll pick it up in verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. And this man heard Paul speaking. And Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. So here's Paul. He's talking about Jesus. And he notices kind of out of the corner of his eye, there's this lame guy sitting there who's listening intently. And Paul, as he looks at him, he just gets this discernment in his heart that this guy believes. So he says to the guy, he says, stand up. And all of a sudden, strength from God, from heaven, fills these limbs that have never walked. He's been lame from his mother's womb. It fills his limbs, and suddenly this guy leaps up, and he starts walking, and he's healed. What happens next, though, is crazy, and it exposes the delusion of the people in Lystra. Look at verse 11. Now, when the people saw that what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus. Barnabas was more stately. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. This is quite a reaction, right? Paul's talking about Jesus. This guy gets healed. And they're like, the gods have come to us. But there was a reason for this. You see, the tradition in Lystra was that there was one other time that Zeus and Hermes had come down to visit the people and they came in disguise. And none of the people, you know, were hospitable to them. Only this one man named Philemon and his wife Bacchus, they were the only ones who treated them with any kind of hospitality. So as the story goes, all of the rest of the people they were in the city were killed except for Philemon and his wife. And they were granted by Zeus and Hermes to be the priest and priestesses of this temple that would be built. And when they died, so the story goes, there were two, you know, they became these two prominent trees there in the city. So when Paul comes and he heals this guy, the people in the city are like, we're not going to make that mistake again. This is Zeus and Hermes, they've come back. And so they want to worship them. They want to offer sacrifices to them. And I want to just pause here for a minute and say, I think this is another tactic of Satan. You see, in Antioch, Pisidia, 
they're coming against them in, in, with violence. In, in Iconium, they're coming against them in violence and threats and division. But it's not stopping the Paul and Barnabas. They're digging in. So the, the, the devil goes, I'm going to try another tactic. Let's try flattery. Let's, let, let people just accept them like they're gods. And I wonder if, if there would have been a temptation in Paul and Barnabas to go, you know, this is kind of a nice change of pace. Instead of wanting to kill us, they want to worship us. We might be able to use this to our advantage. But they don't do that, do they? Paul and Barnabas' reaction to this response reminds us of an important truth. I want you to catch this. It's this, that we want to make Jesus famous, not ourselves. That's what we're about. We want to make Jesus famous, not ourselves. And they do this in two ways. Number one, they expose their flaws and vulnerabilities. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. Paul and Barnabas ripped their clothes and like, guys, we're, we're, we're guys. We're human beings just like you are. We're flawed just like you are. Don't worship us. What a contrast to the Instagram world that we live in today where people rarely ever show their worst sides, where every single picture is filtered, where the lives are are shown being way more cool, way more fun, and way more glamorous than they really are. What a contrast to the celebrity pastor culture that we live in where where pastors can be seen as being larger than life and way more spiritual than they really are. What Paul and Barnabas do here flies in the face of all of that. They rip their clothes and they're like, hey, we're men just like you. It's not about us. And guys, that's why we have to be so real about our flaws. It's one of the reasons why I I tell you stories sometimes about me and Denise, my wife, and how we fight. How I I can say idiotic things to her. In fact, sometimes she'll say to me, you need to say something negative about me next week because what you said today was way too nice, you know? (laughs) But it's like, hey, we want you to know that, that we're real. That, that we're, we, we're flawed just like the rest of you. You know, I want you to know, don't put your confidence in me as your pastor because I'll disappoint you and I will fail you. I will. I'm flawed. It's why I like to tell you all the time, no one here is perfect. No one has arrived. None of us. We are all broken people who are in the process of being transformed by our loving Redeemer, right? That's who we are. And we need to recognize that. We need to embrace that. And so this is what Paul and and Barnabas do. They they first of all reveal reveal their humanity. We're guys just like you. And second, they preach the truth about God. They say, look, don't look at us. Look to him. Look at verse 15. They say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own 
ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. He's saying, look, it's not about us. It's about God, who's our creator, and he's our sustainer, and we are his messengers. He sent us here with a message, and I want you to note the goal. Again, in verse 15, he says, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. That's the goal, to turn from useless things to the living God. There are so many people around us today, maybe even some in this room, who are spending their life pursuing after useless things. Useless things that won't satisfy the void in the heart because only God can do that. But people all around us are pursuing after these useless things. I call them the three Ps. Some people are pursuing position. Oh, if I can just get to that place in, 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 in my company. If I can just get to that place on the social ladder, if I can just reach those amount of sales, then I'm going to be satisfied. They are pursuing, pursuing position. Others are pursuing possessions. Oh, if I can just get that new thing, that new car, that new whatever, but it doesn't satisfy. And then some are pursuing pleasure. Oh, if I can just experience that place or that thing. That's the thing that is lacking. And they pursue these things that are useless because the Bible makes it very clear. None of those things can satisfy. It's only God who can satisfy the longing in our soul. I love Psalm 107. It says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or you're watching online, you don't know Jesus, you, you've been trying to fill that void with so many things, but they don't fit. They don't bring that lasting satisfaction because only Jesus can do that. And that's why he came from heaven. That's why he died on the cross for your sins. That's why he rose again, so that he could satisfy the longing in your soul. And he wants to do that today. Well, the people, they're not listening. Look at verse 18. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. And this leads us to consider the final reaction to Jesus that we see here, and that's of death. And it reveals the fickleness of the people. Look at verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Talk about fickle. They're gods. Let's sacrifice to them the next day. Let's kill these guys. I mean, this is nuts. But it just shows how fickle people can be when we refuse to be what or who they want us to be. So they're throwing rocks at Paul, and they only stop because they think he's dead. We pick it up in verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, so they're there, they're in shock. They're crying. They're, they're, they're praying. So they gather around him, and it says, and he rose up. Paul opens up his eyes. Hi, guys. <laughs> I'm not dead. <laughs> and then it says, and he got out of there. No, that's not what it says. Look what it says next. He rose up and went back into the city. Like, are you kidding me? Who is this guy? 
I'm just going to show these guys that they can't keep a good man down. You know, it's like he's going in. And then it says, and then the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. I wonder if Paul ever found himself thinking about, looking at some of those scars from those rocks and wondering, was it worth it? Well, those of you who have been with us on Wednesday nights in our study of First and Second Timothy, we know that Paul was writing there to this young pastor named Timothy. Timothy, who he would call his son in the faith. Timothy, who he would end up giving the leadership, passing the baton of the church of Ephesus, the church that Paul pastored the longest. He hands the baton to, to Timothy. Here, I want you to take the church now. Where, guess where Timothy was from? Lystra. He was from Lystra. And so I think every time that Paul looked at those scars, and then he'd think of Timothy, he'd go, it was worth it. Because I believe this very event in the life of Paul was one that impacted Timothy so much that that made him want to then follow Paul, become his son in the faith, and serve Jesus with him. The death brought resurrection. It brought fruit. And you know, here's what I want to close with today. We often want to experience resurrection power in our lives, don't we? We read Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. We're like, me too, Paul. But then he says, and the fellowship of his suffering. Because in order to experience resurrection power, you have to experience a death. It could be death to your dreams. For me, I had this dream. I want to be a college baseball coach. And God came along and said, no, I want you to be a different kind of coach, Rob. Will you die to your dream? Yeah, I will. And I'm so thankful I did. Because I get to be a part of all this with you guys. You know, prior to that, I had never, ever traveled outside the United States. I've now been to like 30 different countries telling people about Jesus. I, I had to, to, to die to relationships. When I was in college, I was, you know, I really wanted to find the right girl. I was dating all these different girls. And finally, I just came to the point, like, this, this is pointless. After, you know, one breakup after another, and like, Lord, I just want you. And it was right around that time. I died to that desire that God brought Denise into my life. And she's been the perfect fit. You want to experience resurrection? There has to be death. Maybe it's death to your agenda, death to your goals. It's you coming to a place of saying, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. And that's what Jesus invites us into today. We're going to partake of communion. I'm going to ask the band to come up right now. And you should have picked up one of these on your way in. If you didn't, you can go get it during the the song in just a moment. They're right outside the doors here. But Jesus said this. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself. That's what Jesus calls us to. It's a mentality that says, Lord, I, I'm recognizing it's not, all, it's not about me. It's not about my goals and my dreams or my agenda. I want to surrender that. That's what we're saying today. 
As we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, what he did for us as we partake of these elements, we're also stepping into a lifestyle that he's called us to, to follow after him, to say, Lord, I want your plan for my life. Jesus would continue there in Matthew 16 and say, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he were to, get to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And that's Jesus' invitation to you today. If you don't know him, is to give your life to him. To surrender to him. To say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want to experience that forgiveness of sins. I want my guilt removed. I, I want to be in relationship with you. And I want to encourage you today. If that's your heart, you just tell Jesus that. As we're singing this song, you just tell him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Come into my heart. Come into my life. And he'll meet you today. Sometimes we hear that invitation, though, of Jesus, and we think, man, that just seems so hard. And it does take perseverance. It's why the writer of The book of Hebrews said this, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're in a race, but we're to run with endurance. But here's what I want you to catch. You know why we can endure why we can persevere is because Jesus endured for us. Because the writer of Hebrews went on to say this. Here's how we run. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice what he says, that who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And when we think of enduring something, we think of just barely getting by, but that's not what Jesus was doing on the cross. That word endured there in Hebrews chapter 12 is the word hupomeneo in the Greek, and it means to conquer. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was conquering sin. He was conquering death. He was conquering Satan so that you and I, as Romans chapter 8 puts it, could be more than conquerors through who? Him who loved us. That's why we can endure. That's why we can persevere. And so, Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us and you've called us into this relationship with you. And, Lord, I pray for anybody here that hasn't experienced that, that right now they would just open up their hearts to you. That they would just say, Jesus, I need you. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, to just do that right now. Lord, we thank you that we are more than conquerors because you love us. So Lord, help us. Help us to be a people, a church, individuals. Help us to be families that know what it means to persevere. Who dig in. Who are in it for the long haul. Because Lord, you hung in there for us. You hung on there, the cross, for us. 